Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh, the Jeeves to my Worcester. Hello. Just quickly, Jeeves, Jeeves is uh, brilliant. There's no shame in Jeeves. <laughs> yeah. What you've done there You're is, my make, butler. is make a class distinction. <laughs> <laughs> because of the lawsuit, I'm, I've got to be your butler. <laughs> Welcome to the third meeting of the South London Book Club. This week we're looking at two books by two alumni of Dulwich College, Raymond Chandler, and we've read The Big Sleep, and P.G. Woodhouse, and we're looking at Smith in the City. Our guest this week is Paul Ansorge. Hello, Paul. Hello. Manchester United fans listening will know from the planet's number one or two Manchester United podcast, the Rankcast. Yes, hopefully they will. And if they don't, they can find it on iTunes by putting in Rankcast. UnitedRank.co.uk, that works too. A reminder that we would appreciate it if you use the Amazon link on southlandhardcore.com when you're doing your Amazon shopping. And if you could sign up for an Amazon Prime trial, 30-day free trial, costs you nothing and we get £5 to put towards a podcast. Some lovely editions of PG Woodhouse. They've got a habit that could be annoying of rejacketing his entire works every five years. And you know, I think people will occasionally try to get everything in one uniform look edition yeah but they tend to go out of print before there's any chance of it because he produced so many books Chandler as well some lovely editions so you know if you were looking to buy the complete works of either of these people or you know you've started a PG Woodhouse thing and like if the books have gone out of print you go on Amazon you'll find them you can plug your uh, collection and we can uh, get a bit of cash back to help fund our purchases for future book episodes so as a show, we've got some history with Dulwich College. You have some of the most joyful memories of your life. You married Lakeisha on the grounds of Dulwich College. Well, yes, I did, Steve, yeah. The Great yeah. Hall, would that be the correct...? Well, we got married in the old library, which is no longer a library, and we, uh, yeah, had the um, rece- uh, reception, yeah, meal, the wedding breakfast, I think you call it. Do you call it that? I don't, but... One one calls it that. <laughs> yeah, in the Great Hall. And This know, is like something out of Hogwarts, people were saying. Steve. Well, it is. It's just such a wonderful backdrop, isn't it? It's mm. one of the best places I've ever been to for a wedding. It's, I have to say that because I was at a wedding yesterday. They don't listen. <laughs> but, you know, but if word gets back, I'm dissing their wedding already. Where did they, they get married? Our lanes. Michael Ruskin. I wouldn't have got that joke yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a beautiful place to get married. You know, I've obviously got mixed feelings about the day. Regret, uh, isn't it? Just you know, just you know, as we I wept throughout pause. You probably know as a regular listener. I do. Um, but happier memories than you, Steve, in a way. Although you got to stand there watching me cry <laughs> and insist that you thought I was going to collapse. If you say that again, Steve, I'm going to go mad. I, I, re- I reposition my body to allow for his collapse. I was looking. I was looking at how the knees were trembling. Honestly, what I, are the knees trembling? The knees were trembling. I was, like, I was like, I was like a, taking a penalty, and you're watching where the keeper's going to go. But rather what? than yeah. hitting, hitting the ball the other way, getting your body under his so he doesn't concuss himself on a stone floor. That Am was, I uh, Bruce Grobbler? <laughs> I still maintain they're happy memories for you because what you experienced there was being so overwhelmed that your body and mind couldn't handle the situation. That's and that's true. a good thing, isn't it? How rare are those occasions in life where, you know, emotionally you're so blown away by what's happening to you? 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's certainly the most overwhelmed. Well, apart from maybe when we had the baby. That's what um, I mean. It's all positive later. memories, isn't it? More yeah. we, well, such joy that your body not, cannot control. Uh, Labour is not all positive memories. From no, me. no, far from it. Far from it. The but arrival one, of one thing that Keisha always mentions about the wedding, and like she's still not happy about it, is that I spent the speech talking about you. Um, <laughs> not the whole speech. I talked about the Keisha. You know, there was the Kanye West quote I threw in there, and. Uh, you know, I had to go at Hassan as well, didn't I? <laughs> but I mentioned in the speech, Steve, that uh, you had attempted to go to Dulwich College, hadn't you? Yes, my memory is Dulwich College. One visit previous to Jack's wedding, and that brought it up to one-one on positive and negative experiences. <laughs> my, my previous visit was to sit for the entrance exam for Dulwich College to get a scholarship to go. Um, as I was leaving primary school, I was seen as bright. So they uh, let me sit this exam, which then proved that I wasn't as bright as they did. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I was actually resoundingly normal. So then I went off to uh, another school that was also fine. I only wanted to go to Dutch College. At this point, I'm 10, 11. I have no idea who PG Woodhouse is. No idea who Raymond Chandler is. Don't really care about cricket, which is a huge thing at the school. Sports generally, not too fast in terms of, of playing. But they had a helicopter. That's pretty special, isn't it? Yeah. And at that point, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. That was the plan. Right. A plan formulated. What did they do with uh, the helicopter? I think they taught pupils how to fly helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> See, you, some people argue that maybe going to a public school gives you a sense of entitlement. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. What is that based on? I've been in a helicopter. I can't go back. <laughs> but it's not an accident, is it, that, you know... It's um, an accident waiting to happen. Not <laughs> to fly it. I was, I was going to say, you, is that what you thought you were when you were ten, Steve? Because I don't think that's what it is, is it? Yeah, that was my my take on it. Yeah, yeah. I would get to fly a helicopter. Yeah, to yeah. Doctor Who's house. <laughs> Same week. <laughs> but uh, it's no accident that when you see the royal family serving now in the armed forces. They're helicopter pilots, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, right. Because it's just a public, public school, in it? They're just like, once they're 10, sticking in a helicopter, getting flying <laughs> around, they, then they never look back. And, of course, the Queen, uh, famously, this year, last year, gifted... Who was it? They was, I don't oh, know. Yeah, she bought someone a helicopter. Bought someone a helicopter. Well, right. we, she bought them, yeah. Let's be fair. We bought someone a helicopter. Yeah. She put her name on the tag. It's a bit off, I think, <laughs> isn't it? Is. At least put my name on the tag. Actually, don't put my name on the tag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just give us the helicopter. You guys could really use a helicopter. That'd be, I feel like that would be really <laughs> yeah, helpful actually, for that. That would be great. Yeah, going from uh, episode to episode. <laughs> if you use the Amazon link, right, if we ever get helicopter money, <laughs> sign up for that Amazon Prime trial, man. It's not a joke. Entirely unrelated. Except it's helicopter related, but there's a wonderful bit of, a uh, wonderful moment in comics where Thanos, who you may know from the most recent Marvel films as a cosmically powerful figure who's you know rivals gods in his abilities um there's a story where he's fighting a character called the cat and he has a thanos copter which is a helicopter with thanos <laughs> printed on the side <laughs> but also as you know thanos quite a big lad and this helicopter is like one inch bigger than him so he's basically just filling his helicopter and chasing down the cat in his Thanos copter. There's also a lovely bit at the end where he gets caught and he's led away by the police in handcuffs. <laughs> and you're like, I can't think you've misread Thanos' powers. <laughs> was this a bit of a nadir for Marvel? It wasn't their best day. It wasn't their best day. I mean, to be fair, it's a brilliant bit of comic stuff just because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. But... So, talking of pulp literature, 
Hey! Oh. Strong, strong four. There are many famous alumni from Dulwich College, and we don't want to use up, you know, all the material today. So we're only talking about these two. Raymond Chandler being one of them. And The Big Sleep is the book we've read. 1939. It was based on two short stories, Killer in the Rain and the Curtain, which he kind of stitched together to make The Big Sleep. It's his debut novel, but obviously not his first published work. He was known at this point. Features Philip Marlowe as the main character, the detective, on the trail of... Well, various trails, isn't it? That's the thing about it. He's hired for one case, gets an idea about another, I think solves a third. It's a <laughs> remarkably convoluted plot. There's a story where, um, when they were doing the, the film in 1946, one just <laughs> ran out Raymond Chandler and asked about a point in the book about, I think it was whether the driver had killed himself. Yeah, he killed, killed, killed the uh, limo driver. And Chandler's response was, uh, damn it, I don't know myself. You see, he was like, had lost complete control of what the plot was at this point. And it, it sort of makes sense that it's two short stories stitched together because he's taken disparate plot elements and squidged them and... It's incredibly convoluted, as you say, to the point that he didn't, he totally forgot himself. And it really has the feel of almost like a serialised novel where you get that in Dickens and stuff where it, it was originally printed in the papers and you can sort of see them working out as they're going along. And it's very episodic in its feel and it's got this kind of through line that just about glues it all together. But you're not really in it for the plot, are you? That's the thing. No. There's so much about the character, is it? Characters, but mainly Philip Marlowe. Yeah. And dialogue, phrasing, it's yeah. the language that is the Yeah, real his turn of phrase is, is so special, isn't it? So I was thinking about the fact that they're both Dulwich College alumni and thinking, well, what is, what is there in these texts that links the two? And it's the prose. I mean, we read Smith in the City, but all the Jeeves and Worcester books, bar one, I think, are all written from the perspective of Worcester in the first person, and Chandler's writing for Marlowe in the first person, and he both of them use that device to conjure up these absolutely stunning moments of prose. Because beyond the characters, beyond what actually happens to any of beyond even the kind of really memorable dialogue, I watched a bit of the film today, and the film's great, it holds up its... Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Yeah, yeah and Bogart and Bacall, and they kind of play up the relationship between Vivian and Philip Marlowe to make it more Bogart and Bacall, but it's got a lot of the original Chandler dialogue, and it works in dialogue form. But, like, you've got all those things are on a kind of list of, yeah, these are all things that are good about it. And then right at the top you've got prose, descriptive mm. prose, which is, it's just peerless. He describes the rain in Los Angeles as uh, being knee-high rain. And I've never heard that description before, and yet it tells you everything you need to know about how the character was feeling about the city, the rain, the whole thing. It was like, it had... Uh, incredibly kinetic quality but also like a really draining quality it's just stunning prose and in terms of like setting mood I mean it's you know noir but just absolute perfection isn't it it just like immerses you completely in, in the story yeah when he goes to uh, General Sternwood's house which is where it opens like the way he describes the house you're there aren't you it's it's stunning. I'm gonna if you don't mind, I've got to read a bit. I'm not gonna do a voice because oh, I do. <laughs> no, my my any attempt I made at doing a Raymond Chandler voice would be hideously perfect. I could do, <laughs> I could get away with like doing a bit of Woodhouse, but <laughs> Chandler not. But the 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 kind of 
just the, the very opening. The main hallway of the Sternwood place was two stories high. Over the entrance doors, which would have let in a troop of Indian elephants. So incredibly uh, precise, but tells you a huge amount you want to, you need to know. Indian elephants has an inherently kind of luxurious thing, plus it's enormous in scale. And then he says, over the entrance door, blah, 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 there was a broad stained glass panel showing a knight in dark armour rescuing a lady who was tied to a tree. It's kind of interesting language for him. And, and didn't have any clothes on, but some very long and convenient hair. It doesn't get better, does it? Except it does, <laughs> in the next sentence. The knight had pushed the visor of his helmet back to be sociable. (laughs) This is a unique observation of something like that. And he was fiddling with the knots on the rope that tied the lady to the tree and not getting anywhere. He's like, tells you so much about Marlowe's character because he's kind of looking at this knight and going, I'm not making much headway, I'm sorted out by now. And as if to emphasise that, he says, I stood there and thought that if I lived in the house, I would sooner or later have to climb up there and help him. He didn't really seem to be trying. <laughs> and it's like, you know, this is, that's the first page. Yeah, you yeah. Know? It's like you're in for a treat and you really are. Yeah, when and, he goes back to it, uh, the same, he ends up back at the house, like towards the end of the book. And he's back at the uh, like stained glass window. Yeah, it's brilliant. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, and also just the, the the individual phrasing as well. It's a lovely bit of imagery, but the phrase "Indian elephants" has such a, a wonderful flow to it that it immediately sets a rhythm for the book, and it works. It works beautifully in terms of immersing. Absolutely, and it, it kind of it at no point does it slip. At no point does he lose that rhythm, um, which is I, th- I think. I think that's something that you could say about both these authors. They, they both sustain a very high level of consistency in the in the prose style. It also applies to the dialogue, I think, doesn't it, as well, really? Absolutely, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess because it's written from his point of view, Marlowe, it's kind of the, the dialogue and the prose is his, isn't it? I mean, it's an int- a hard one to reconcile, I think. Yeah, he's our narrator mm. and the main character, so you're sort of getting his internal voice and him, and then what he's presenting to the world. What I love about him, about Marlowe and about the book, is, you know, that he, he he makes these, like, he's witty, and he makes these kind of witty observations just for himself, <laughs> like, and they're just throwaway. And, like, he'd be in a, he'd be in a interaction with some, you know, uh, hoodlum, or, you know, with one of the girls, and, like, they're not getting, like, his... Yeah, like, yeah, he's yeah. throwing out these, like, little... Yeah, and they just just go straight over their head, but he's only doing it to amuse himself, it seems. And that's something that we'll come across particularly in Smith and the Sea. Yeah. It's a common thing in Woodhouse books as well, where the character, the character's talking to us. Yeah. And it's for our amusement, and and, and we and the character are laughing together at these clowns that have been forced to uh, come up against. So there's this guy called Tom Williams who's written a book about Chandler, and for free on Amazon... If you happen to be browsing Amazon using the mm. South London Harding link, um, you can download a chapter um, of a book which is specifically about his writing at the Big Sleep. And he says, Rhythm was important to Ray, and he took an unusual approach to ensure his novels had it. He would take a sheet of yellow letter paper, 8.5 inches by 11 inches, cut it in half and roll it into a typewriter turned up long ways. Then, triple spacing as he went, he would write about... 125 to 150 words on each piece of paper. He believed that this method of writing in short, sharp bursts kept his prose lean and punchy. And you just think it's not an accident that it's happened. He's quite literally made a physical 
uh, decision that's that's kind of supports that writing style, which is remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it goes so well with the character as well, doesn't it? Because he's uh, such a kind of straight ahead guy, and he he Marlowe he kind of plays. No, don't play dumb. He kind of insists that he's not an intelligent guy, but constantly just dropping these these. Uh, these nuggets in that kind of prove the opposite. Even when, even the Indian elephants thing, there's a bit where it could have just said elephants. Yeah, and like, yeah. He knows the difference. And it's interesting because there's a real feel of sparseness and economy. Like he's not giving away too much when he talks, but it's a florid way of doing it, isn't it? That's mm. the thing. It's got this wonderful thing of, as you say, being very sharp, but at the same time decorative, which is such a hard thing to be able to do. And it's incredibly, the, the combination of the florid nature of it and the fact that he's this kind of really hard bloke. Like, you know, <laughs> like he takes a beating, he's, it hurts, and he, you know, he, he makes reference to the fact that, you know, a real beating really hurts sort of thing. But he'll take it and, you know, do what needs to be done and get the job done. But he'll do it all the while talking in this incredibly elaborate style. He's really self-deprecating as well. That's, um, But in a slightly... You know, it the, the character... Of Carmen, the little sister, makes reference to the fact that he knows he's good looking, and it, that's kind of because everything's told from the first person. You kind of build into that 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 that's something he's sort of agreeing implicitly by quoting the person he's talking to. He's kind of agreeing with it, and um, but then he's uh, somebody says, "My God, you big dark handsome brute! I ought to throw a Buick at you." That's what. He <laughs> <laughs> and he responds not out loud, but the the thing says. I snicked a match on my thumbnail and for once it lit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's brilliant. He's kind of undercuts himself at the at the same time, but the next thing she says is I, I loathe masterful men, so he's like, Oh yeah, I, I really am masterful. <laughs> yeah. So the role of women in both Chandler and Woodhouse, I think it's fair to say is fairly problematic. And given that we're talking about their link through Dulwich College, it's maybe not a surprise that growing up in an all boys public school they're not the best at dealing with women because women are they represent more than anything else danger in both of these problems yeah problems danger something but he's in the film Bogart is very smooth and kind of extremely kind of hyper sexualized and all the women that talk to him, want him, and, you know, he's perfectly happy about that. Closing bookshops, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Um, But in the book, when um, Carmen is in his bed with no clothes on and is snuck in in the middle of the night, his response is one of kind of primal anger. He kind of destroys the bed when he sees the imprint of her. And it's like, because he kind of lets her go, or makes her go. And then, and that's, it's just... There's something going on there, there? and (laughs) she turns out, well, let's not spoil the ending, but it's because it's very worth reading. But yeah, there's definitely... Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's society at the time is also part of it, but as you say, specifically that background of coming from an all-boys school, and they probably, well, uh, yeah, they would have bought it, wouldn't they? Yeah, you think so. Yeah. I mean, Chandler, his family would have been locally, so he might have been they, but Woodhouse's family were all um, in Hong Kong. Mm. He definitely bought it, and yeah, saw his parents for a total of six months until the age of uh, thirteen. All right, yeah, so never really uh, knew his mother, let alone had a relationship with her. And what's interesting is, of these two authors, Woodhouse is much more well-adjusted as a person because Raymond Chandler's personal life was a complete 
nightmare and, and this, alcoholism. Was it, yeah. and, There's yeah. an interview on, on YouTube um, of him talking to Ian Fleming because Ian Fleming was a huge fan of Chandler's work and both Fleming and Chandler felt... And it's an interesting thing because we're talking about the quality of the prose and the quality of the writing. And Chandler spent his entire life as a writer massively resentful of his treatment by literary critic. Well, he, the fact that they ignored him. And when he was reviewed, he was reviewed purely as a crime writer and not his book wasn't taken um, on a, as, a, as a novel of note to be looked at alongside you know, historical fiction or general fiction. And there's this... It's a series of seven videos where it was for a BBC show where Chandler was saying London and Fleming was, was in London at the time and they got them into a studio to talk about uh, literature. And they, they prefaced the interview by explaining that they went to collect Chandler at 11 o'clock in the morning and he's drunk. He just stinks of whiskey and he's drunk. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. But they've booked the studio. So they take Chandler along and him and Fleming do the interview. And it's, there's, it's fascinating for a number of reasons. Ian Fleming has a voice that doesn't exist anymore. I don't know how to describe it. Do it's, it. It's the plummiest thing you're ever going to hear. I don't think I can do it. I don't. I think. I think the human body has been transformed <laughs> so totally since that era that our vocal cords can no longer make those noises. But it's, it's well worth listening to just for that. But almost immediately, the first thing they talk about is how they classify the novels, how they look at the novels, and Chandler just goes on a huge rant about how you can write the worst historical novel and it will get more coverage than any of his books just on the basis of, of what they're about. Which I think is an interesting point when we look at Woodhouse as well. And it's something that always fascinates me as someone who works in a comic shop and sees a lot of comics. The idea that, you know, format and genre dictates how something is looked at rather than the quality of the work. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that Guardians of the Galaxy will be the best film released between the last Oscars and the next Oscars, but it's obviously not got a, a chance of winning, and I sort of feel a bit that way about The, the Big Sleep. Like, it was, it is a work of high art. There's no question that any literary analysis you do of it, it's an absolutely outstanding example of what you can do with words on a page. Um, there's an interesting side note about China that he, he says born in America and he moves here when he's seven or thereabouts and lives here because his father leaves, he's got a rich Irish uncle who basically pays for the family to be here and presumably paid for him to go to Dulwich because um, unless he got scholarships and stuff I'm sure that was pretty pricey at the time uh, and no doubt still a <laughs> um, lot cheaper now, lot cheaper. <laughs> um, and but it's in going back to America, he has the outsider's ear because he, he sums up something about America to such an extent that it becomes a parody. Like, everything you, you see and read now, if you read it having kind of experienced the last 50 years of popular culture, it feels like uh, it feels almost hokey because it's been done to death in sketches and the singing detective and you know the the Woody Allen film and play it against Sam and all that stuff that it's it's sort of overblown but when you go back to the source material it's not overblown at all it's perfect and it's a perfect observation of something about America and it has an absolutely perfect ear for the American idiom and there is definitely something in like he studied classics and he was apparently very gifted with languages so there's something in that with Woodhouse as well, you've got two writers who end up living in America, but love England. You know, Woodhouse is forced, and we'll talk about that later in the show, he's forced to essentially move away from England until he dies. Chandler moves back to America, but as you say, he moves back to America 
with not only his, his memories and, and a vision of England, but a very idealised vision of England. And for me, what comes out in the books is the fact that he sees, and, and what he chooses to write and how he chooses to write about it, he sees America as a place of corruption, as a place of criminality, as a place of, of you know, morally questionable people, particularly where he is in Los Angeles. And I think part of that is the contrast of him coming from this uh, very idyllic, vision of England, you, you know, you, you, you go into a private school in what would be a leafy suburb of London and you're not seeing any underbelly or underside of it and then suddenly you're thrown into a grimy Los Angeles of the 30s and there's, you know, newspaper stories about gangsters all over the place. I think that is going to inform what you're going to write about and then, as you say, you've got the, the literary chops to be able to write about in a certain way. Mm. So when I was reading it, I found it difficult, well I say difficult, I didn't even really attempt to to kind of shake um, Humphrey Bogart out of my head. He just, it's him, innit? I was reading it in his voice. Do you know what fascinated me? And I, this might be, well, it's entirely my own ignorance. I was stunned to find out that Humphrey Bogart played Philip Marlowe once. Right. (laughs) I assume there was a dozen films where he's played... Well, this is the thing, like, you know, say the Maltese Falcon, which is... uh, Sam Spade. Yeah, Yeah. it's Dashiell. But again, and I was like, like, oh, maybe I'm confusing those two characters. He plays him once. (laughs) So you're talking about two film roles that for me, and I know Bogart... No, but even uh, even Casablanca. Yes. Another character already, but it's the kind of... It's the movie star thing, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. Where you kind of, you become, you know, you well, I guess, I, I don't know, what, what is, yeah, where does it, does it all, does it, the Humphrey Bogart character come from Big Sleep? Is that the idea? I think so, because, uh, I mean, Casablanca predates Big Sleep, the film, I think. Yeah, yeah it does, Casablanca is what, is it 39? Uh, Late it? 30s, early yeah. 40s, because it was part of the sort of propaganda to get right, America yeah, into yeah. the war. And and Big Sleep is just post-war, and there's definitely a huge lineage between the name escapes me, but his character in Casablanca Rick. is very yeah Rick. Thing. Of course, of course, it's a Rick. <laughs> Rick. Anyway, um, Rick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's from uh, Casablanca. <laughs> but when it, interesting because when I read it, I almost lost the Bogart voice at some point because it was like. There's something deeper and and richer about the portrayal in the novels than than that Humphrey Bogart character. It was great, but he's a movie star all the way through. The taxi driver, you know, picks him up, drops him off. He, she gives him his car, her card, and is like, you know, anytime, call me. And <laughs> he says day or night. And she goes, well, no, it's better. I'm working in the daytime. And you know, this is that's the Humphrey. What happens to Humphrey Bogart? And I don't think that happens to Marlowe in the same way. I think um, Elliot Gould was a brilliant Marlowe in um, The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman film from the 70s. Which, I mean, it's not exactly unknown, but it's a bit of a lost gem. I've it's, never seen it. There we go. Mm-hmm. See, it's, it's, I think it's one of the great films. Well worth a look. That's an adaptation of The Long Goodbye, obviously. Well, I didn't realise there was... Uh, he only played Marlowe once, Elliot Gould, Steve. He'll be <laughs> <laughs> but only one person has played Marlowe twice. Do you know who that was? No. Robert Mitchum, who appears in the 1979 version of The Big Sleep, directed by Michael Winner. Oh, Apparently right. it's not as good as... Is, he, is, he, is he in Farewell, My Lovely? Yes. Yeah, yeah right. that's his other, his other yeah. turn. Um, nice South London connection with the 1979 film. Oliver Reed's in it. Of course he is. It's a Michael Winner film. Man couldn't make a film without my, uh, Oliver Reed turn at some point. Playing Eddie Mars. 
I haven't seen it. I'm not watching Michael Winner films, am I? No. Don't know. Not fucking help it. Doesn't seem like natural casting, does it? Only read does Eddie Mars. No, yeah. But hey, it's Michael Winner, he you know, you're lucky he's not playing Wonder Women. He's just like <laughs> <putting it anyway. laughs> Interesting contrast between the two films as well. The nineteen forty six film is obviously made at a time where socially and with the Hayes Codes you can't portray sexuality, you certainly can't portray homosexuality, you can't show nudity, pornography, all of which are very important elements to this particular story. Yeah. Um, but in a 1979 film, you can. And even with that extra freedom, Michael Winner still couldn't make a better version <laughs> of The Big Sleep. There's, um, there's a scene, a key scene right early in the book where one of the women is photographed naked and it's a blackmail thing. In the film, she's photographed wearing a Chinese dress, and the scandal is considered equivalent. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. we're looking at Gary. That's an indicator, that, isn't it? That photo is probably not that bad. <laughs> 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 you know, it's probably not worth that much money. An indirect adaptation. Well, you know, an influence, should we say, really? Oh, huge influence. Yeah, is and the Big Lebowski. There's a a lot of crossover between the Big Lebowski and the Big Sleep. Title. The title as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and I had forgotten that. I, d- I did know that. I mean, Big Lebowski is sort of my equal favourite film of all time, so I've seen it many times. But I'd forgotten that it was the big sleep that it was the basis for. So when, in that opening scene, when he goes in, and he goes in and the guy's in the wheelchair, yeah, yeah. The war, and it's like, oh yeah, of course. But then... And on the way of, out, runs into a femme fatale. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's uh, a, a huge uh, correspondence, that mm. particular scene, isn't it? And it, but, I mean, there's not... There's not a great deal after that. There's a bit where no, he gets. There no. is a bit where he um, where he gets um, he gets his drink spiked. Yes, and he collapses, and that's kind of it. there's a bit like that in the Big Lebowski. And the spirit of it, in terms of the convoluted plot and the way that it starts off as one crime and turns into another. Mm. So they, yeah, it's the it's spirit of the around piece. Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely there are big parallels. Big parallels. I mean, if it's a choice between watching the Big Lebowski or Michael Winner's 1979. <laughs> <laughs> If you have a choice between uh, watching the 1946 Big Sleep or reading the book, I'd highly recommend reading the book. Yeah, and then you can watch the film after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the the film is like a good example, and it's a fine turn from Bogart and Bacall, so that's always worth watching. But the book is something else. The book is really all of his stuff, really, all of his detective fiction. It's it's just an it's an incredible treat. Which is how I also feel about Woodhouse, but um, that the every page has got some moment where it's just like you want to you want to give that sentence a hug. <laughs> <laughs> what a great sentence! Kind of like a round of applause for that sentence, you know? Yeah, it is brilliant, and you know, I'll, I, I think over the course of my life, I will go on and read all of his books. I would have thought based off this, no mention of Dulwich in this or any of his books is there? Well, except for the fact that Philip Marlowe gets his name from the house at Dulwich that Chandler... Well, apparently not. What? Apparently this is apocryphal, because when he was there, Dulwich hadn't yet uh, introduced a system of houses. Right. So, so I read the Guardian that in, have got that wrong. Yeah, this is, in, <laughs> this, is in, this is in Tom Wilson's book, and he suggests that it's actually a reference to Christopher Marlowe. Right. Right. Which, Which is what the house would be called Marlowe after Christopher yes. Marlowe, yeah. but it's just not gone that way around. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, no, maybe but... Tom Wilson, author of a book about Raymond Chandler, is wrong. <laughs> I'm just quoting him. <laughs> right on the spot. There, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of plugs, though, isn't it? <laughs> 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 but, I mean, 
At the end of the day, the route is the same, though, isn't it? He oh, would have he would have read Christopher Marlowe at Dulwich College. You would have thought, yeah, yeah he yeah. did classics. So, yeah. like, I mean, that's pre obviously pre Marlowe, but I'm sure he he was a pretty well read dude, wasn't he? That's well read dude. Well, that's what <laughs> gravestone. <laughs> His gravestone does have a quote from Big Sleep on it. Does it? Yeah, it says something like "Dead men are heavier than something." Whatever the quote is in the Big Sleep. No. Doesn't just say big sleeping with a G not <laughs> off and then there's an apostrophe. <laughs> it doesn't. Here lies Roman Chandler sleeping the big sleep because that is, of course, what the big sleep is. Is it something like what did it matter where you lay once you were dead in a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? <laughs> you were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Brilliant, isn't it? Should we get that for the end of the show? Actually, yeah, it's good. <laughs> you get you opening the book. You start this <laughs> That's the famous how I open for this <laughs> I know what you're laughing at. It's a good way of finding pages. <laughs> Mike wandered out of the house. A few steps took him to the railings that bounded the college grounds. It was late August and the evenings had begun to close in. The cricket field looked very cool and spacious in the dim light and the school buildings looming vague and shadowy through the slight mist. The little gate by the railway bridge was not locked. He went in and walked slowly across the turf towards the big clump of trees which marked the division between the cricket and football fields. It was all very pleasant and soothing after the pantomime dame in her stuffy bed-sitting room. He sat down on a bench beside the second eleven telegraph board and looked across the ground at the pavilion. For the first time that day, he began to feel really homesick. I read that passage because earlier on today I was standing looking at the big clump of trees that separates the cricket ground still to this day from the football ground because I went for a walk with my dad and just we literally accidentally stumbled across Dulwich College. He thought it was <laughs> a different school. And it was like, oh yeah, it's Alan's school, I think. And then worked out it was Dulwich College and so I sort of read that bit to him pointing at the trees. Going, oh, <laughs> and it's it, the, the character of... So Smith in the City... Um, is the second of a series of four Smith books, but really it's the first one that's a Smith book. The first book was one of his college stories because he that's how he made his break. Unlike Chandler, Woodhouse really loved Dutch College. Like, <laughs> um, and you can feel it in that because the character moves to Dulwich just to be near a college. It's not his college in the book, but it might as well be. Um, and you can feel in that... Woodhouse telling his own story in a very autobiographical way of going back and being at the college and yearning for a different time in his life. And I feel like these books are sort of about him managing his own transition into adulthood. But really, Well, it is. No, Smith in the City is, is uh, probably Woodhouse's most autobiographical work. In the, in the book, Mike, the character we talk about there, has to not go to university and go to work in a bank because his father lost his money. And Woodhouse's father lost his money, which meant Woodhouse couldn't go to university and go and work in a bank. He gets a job at the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. The new Asiatic bank. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, still exists to this day, uh, the the bank that Woodhouse uh, goes to work in. It's HSBC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But obviously he's not, you know, just behind a a counter in, uh, you know, New Alton. He is, he, and went to work, which is why the scenes in the bank are so, I mean, we think of Woodhouse as someone that has incredible precision in his work in terms of phrasing and character and description, but the description of the workings of the bank 
he's not telling you he's going to do research, but he's it's so vivid because he lived that. He lived through it. He spent uh, these horrible and the way he talks about it in the book. You know, Mike is essentially a proxy for PG Woodhouse, uh, and they both hate being stuffed up in this bank and would rather be off playing cricket. Essentially, that's the and what makes it bearable for Mike and what you imagine PG Woodhouse wished for is a Smith to descend into it and bring his attendant chaos with him. Yeah, so my very favourite scene in the book is the scene where Smith arrives in the bank for the first time. And I was reading this uh, with my mum, I was reading it aloud, and we were both crying, laughing by the end of this scene, because it's just, it's just wonderful. Commerce, said Smith as he drew off his lavender gloves, has claimed me for her own. Comrade of old, I too have joined this blighted institution. As he spoke, there was a whirring noise in the immediate neighbourhood, and Mr Rossiter buzzed out from his den with the esprit and animation of a clockwork toy. Who's here, said Smith with interest, removing his eyeglass, polishing it and replacing it in his eye. Mr Jackson, exclaimed Mr Rossiter, I really must ask you to be good enough to come in here from your lunch at a proper time. It was fully seven minutes to two when you returned, and that little more, sighed Smith, and how much is it? Who are you? snapped Mr Rossiter, turning on him. I shall be delighted, comrade. Rossiter, said Mike, aside. Comrade Rossiter, I shall be delighted to furnish you with the particulars of my family history. As follows, soon after the Norman conquest, a certain Sieur de P. Smith grew tired of work, a family failing, alas, and settled down in this country to live peacefully on for the remainder of his life on what he could extract from the local peasantry. It goes on in that fashion and is wonderful. Yeah, there's a lovely phrase just after that where... Uh... Smith, I mean, Rossiter is just all at sea, isn't he, immediately. And Smith says, uh, Smith, the individual, no longer exists. What Rossiter's face is, is Smith, the cog in the wheel of the individual. <laughs> 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 it is just a force of nature. And that, it, it's, that is one of my favourite scenes in any book ever. Just yeah. the, the arrival of Smith in the bank. Because, and it's a wonderful bit at the end where Rossiter returns to his office and he's just glassy-eyed and shoulder <laughs> And that's how you feel. It's such a... A wonderful, forceful, but charming as well, isn't it? He's so the the thing about his character is that you imagine he's an absolute nightmare to be around, <laughs> but he's so entertaining, just so just how, in, entirely oblivious to how anything works apart from what he needs from a particular moment, which is usually. Um, entertainment of some kind, and it's like it's quite difficult to write a charming character who's entirely self-motivated. I mean, motivated by his own self-interest. Yeah, because like, that's a fundamentally uncharming personal characteristic. Yeah. He's an egomaniac. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, he's actually he's a narcissist because yeah. he has no relationship with the outside world beyond how it relates to him. That's his and whole... you know, as, as we see from the book, incredibly manipulative, learns about Rossiter's passions purely to get him on side to allow him to play a bit more. Um, quite vengeful, uh, cross, crossed by uh, Mr. Bickers, like he uh, then goes into basically ruin his life. But all the way through it, we're like, this is brilliant. This <laughs> 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 egotistical, narcissistic, <laughs> uh, manipulative monster is brilliant, isn't he? And all these people are just trying to get on with their work. They're terrible. <laughs> it's a real, I think mean, it's a wonderful book about the workplace as well. We've all had terrible jobs where your boss is a nightmare. You sort of go, wouldn't it be great if I could just ruin their lives a little bit? <laughs> and he gets to do it. I mean, I know you're a great fan of The Office, 
Um, yeah, right. And there's a certain <laughs> there's a certain quality to that of that absolutely the, the kind of fundamental dullness and drudgery yeah. and the kind of uh, uh, figures of leadership who are actually slightly figures of ridicule. What did you mm. did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, he just goes like you say, he goes for it like a whirlwind, and he Smith. Um, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, you've put it perfectly that he you this you shouldn't be on side with. This is the thing about uh, great fiction, isn't it? Like you shouldn't be on side with these people, and but he's just so funny that you just he takes you with him, doesn't he? And he's a toff as well. He should. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I think in any other writer's hands, uh... my, it's just my hackles are up, <laughs> and I'm like, and that, that's what I, I it, I'm always sort of surprised at how much I enjoy it. Woodhouse's work because I'm just reading about toffs. Yeah, and they're usually doing quite well, <laughs> and I don't mind. <laughs> and a couple of weeks ago, you were having a go at Mark Corrigan, Steve, because he was middle class. Yeah. You know. Oh, I'm entirely aware of the confidence. <laughs> but I think, as I say, what a testament to P.G. Woodhouse, the writer, that he creates these characters that I adore completely, even when they are, um, you know, on the surface, monstrous. <laughs> so Did you not consider changing your name to Steve with a P at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> but it's things like that. I mean, that's just pure literature, isn't it? There's yeah. nothing to that except... It's referenced once in the book, but it's not really an issue. But it's just every time you see that written down, mm. it just lifts you a little bit, and and you sort of go, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost, again like we talk about with Chandler. It's almost like a joke between Woodhouse and us against the rest of the book. We know who this guy is, and not the full story is. But everyone else is, they probably think it's Smith and Ness, <laughs> and it's just a wonderfully smart, economical bit of writing, isn't it? So I just did it then, but I can't read it without sounding it P-Smith. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, I call the book P-Smith in the City. It's not, it's Smith, but yeah, like, yeah. as you say, it's this lovely... Like, his dad is always referenced as Mr. Smith. Yeah, that's, and that's lovely, isn't it? It is absolutely lovely. So it's in another book, is it, that they reveal the meaning? I think I think it's in the book before it yeah. makes reference to that. So I And he want, says... Oh, I only read this on Wikipedia, but he says, uh, as in shrimp... It's it's lovely. I there's um there's one bit of this book that I don't like, and that's when they go to dinner at Comrade what's his name's house? Rossiter's. No, oh. the, the other comrade, Comrade Wallander, who is the the nice chap that runs the second bit that Mike goes to work for after postage. And then they go to his is it? Yeah, cash yeah. it. Exactly, yeah, because he passes the badge. Oh, no, spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> point. I have to say, this is a book where not knowing what the plot is, this is not going to make much difference. Man goes to work for bank, stuff happens. And 104 he... years later, man spoils plot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that bit, it sort of sags a bit, and there's a kind of slightly mean-spirited quality to it. Because Woodhouse... The the thing that I think why, even though he's writing about Toffs, it's very palatable, is because Woodhouse is a thoroughly decent fellow, ultimately. He, you know, he was married to the same woman for years on end. There's a bit of controversy. Some people think he was a Nazi sympathiser, but that just yeah. couldn't be further from the We're truth. We're definitely going to talk about that. Yeah, we, right. need to, we need to put... Well, because yesterday I mentioned to Joe Kennedy at Dulwich Hamlet, he uh, does a podcast, or he did a podcast called This Is Deep Play, I'm sure some of our listeners would have laughed. And he, oh, when I mentioned Woodhouse, he said that he was a fascist. Yeah. So. No. And it's just like, it's so ridiculous for a number of reasons. Should we talk about it now? Yeah, let's talk about it. So basically, during the Second World War, and, you know, if, you, if you're if you going to make any slight against P.G. Woodhouse for anything ever, 
1940, he faces double taxation. He's going to have to pay tax to Britain and the US, so he moves to France. He buys a house in a place called Le Touquet, uh, which is on the coast, and uh, resolves to live there to avoid being doubly taxed. I think just pay the tax. You uh, were a very wealthy man, could you with us? If I'm going to have one quibble about anything the guy ever did, is that, and I'm no fascist sympathizer. <laughs> so what happens is, while he's there in France, France gets invaded by the Nazis, and he's interred as a foreign national um, and taken to a camp in Upper Silesia, which is now part of Poland. One of his first remarks when he arrived there was, if this is Upper Silesia, what is Lower Silesia? <laughs> <laughs> which gives you an indicator of his attitude to being interred. It's a horrific thing that happens to, to France and the, the Germans come on, and he basically gets quite a soft go of it in that he's given reasonable food. He's approaching his 60s at this point. He's, you know, 59, 60s. So and also he is a celebrity. He's one of the most famous writers in the world, if not the most famous writer in the world. He's incredibly... So the, the Germans are aware that they shouldn't be mistreating this fella. Also very important to mention that when all this is happening, no one really knows about concentration camps or the final solution. This isn't on anyone's radar in terms of what's happening in the war. It's essentially uh, an invasion by a, a foreign nation. So he is moved around to various places and ends up in Berlin, at which point he's given the opportunity to do radio broadcasts, which he does, humorous radio broadcasts, about life as an internee. None of which is pro-Nazi. Uh, I think it was... I think it was Orwell. One of, one of the, the people who sort of came out to support him afterwards when the contract came out, if you listen to the transcripts, he said, I can't believe the Germans let him record it. Because yeah. it was basically satirical works about the invading army. There's a wonderful bit in the first broadcast where he, and, and again, you can argue about the, 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 the spirit of the piece, but essentially it's a humorous piece about how to become an internee. And it, it opens with him saying some lines of, um, I'm often asked by young men <laughs> of a certain standing about the best way to become an internee. And there's many methods. What, the way I found best was simply to buy a place in France and wait for the Germans to come to you. <laughs> you buy the house, <laughs> the Germans do the rest of the work. It's really... And, and the thing is, it's that sort of thing. And he talks about, you know, he mocks the German army for how they look and how they act in a very gentle, gentle way. And that's the problem. It's very gentle. He's not attacking anyone because that's not what he wants to do but the unfortunate thing is when these broadcasts are made and again how's he going to know I don't think he would have bothered him either way but it sort of looks at this point as if Britain's going to lose the war mm. Germany are dominant is this the bit in the dad's army opening credits this where like, much, <laughs> those arrows their arrows are all over yeah basically Britain was waiting France had fallen um, Britain was waiting the Americans hadn't entered the war Britain was waiting for invasion that they all felt was probably going to be successful. And, uh, not, you know, Battle of Britain's at its height, it's just like uh, the Blitz is happening. And they're hearing that P.G. Woodhouse is living in Berlin off the, off the uh, German diamond doing humorous radio broadcast. So that, that's <laughs> yeah. the problem. It, it's, you know, the fact that he did it at all. And he regretted it afterwards and whatnot. But the idea that he expressed any fascist ideas, you know, George Orwell, after the war, came out to defend him. If you're saying that P.G. Woodhouse is a fascist sympathiser, then you're saying that George Orwell is a sympathiser to fascist sympathisers. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, you can tell by reading his books that he's not, because they, you know, there's nothing serious is addressed in those books, but 
basic human decency is basically at the heart of everything he does. It's well, the closest you come to uh, any sort of political commentary is spoke exactly in, yeah. in the, the Jews and Worcester books. Who is a fascist? Yeah. He's a, uh, um, but he the black he, shorts, the black shorts. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> and he is. He's a caricature of a fascist character. He's a, a joke. And there's a wonderful bit where Bertie gets information that means Spode can't touch him and takes the opportunity to say to Spode, um, uh, you seem to think that because you've... It's several lines of... You seem to think because you've convinced um, uh, you know, a bunch of fools to put on some black baggers and, <laughs> and follow you around and yell, hurrah for Spode, it's somehow <laughs> worthwhile. Um, yeah, it, it, it just completely... He, he's a joke from start to finish. Yeah. So... You know, he was a prisoner of war who, you know, made some humorous broadcasts at a time when humorous broadcasts were not of any use. He wasn't a fascist. He wasn't a Nazi. Doesn't help. He is roundly uh, vilified in Britain during the war and after the war. Uh, moves back to America. Never returns to Britain. Uh, almost broken heart. I mean, he had a terrible war. We, you talked earlier about women in Chandler and Woodhouse's books. And you can make an argument that when he marries and gets a stepdaughter, um, Leonora, mm-hmm. um, who he adores and who adores him, suddenly the women in his books for this small window are more vivid, are more angry, are more active, are given agency in a way that you don't really expect. And I'm not just saying, and it was this whole thing of him adoring Leonora and it giving a new facet to his writing where suddenly he's like, oh, I can, he's got a model to do. And as you say, it's not necessarily badly motivated earlier it's ignorance through going to boarding school and suddenly when he meets this vivacious bright young woman he writes her into the books but she dies during the war and that breaks his heart as well so he has a, a terrible terrible time of it and as I say in, in Britain you've got A.A. A. Milne leading the charge against him which leads to quite an interesting literary feud where uh, A.A. Milne the the planet and Beth. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh, yeah. Right. Um, so, A.A. Milne basically. I was going to say A.A. Milne who shot the baboon. That's A.A. <laughs> Gill, isn't it? A.A. <laughs> Milne basically writes open letters to various newspapers explaining why P.G. Woodhouse's illustration should never be invited back to the UK. And they'd never really got on. They'd known each other, but never really got on. But Woodhouse basically fires back from America by making his characters read A.A. Milne books in, in certain situations. There's a scene in the mating season where someone has to do a reading of Christopher Robin poems at a church fair and both like, it could have been worse, it could have been Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> 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 There's a great and uh, P.G. Woodhouse this might even predate the thing and, and possibly provoke the feud, but there's a lovely bit where he, he talks about uh, in an interview P.G. Woodhouse says I started a try to like AA Milne Club. <laughs> One man joined, but left a week later. He explained he'd finally met A.A. Milne. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that it's like A.A. against P.G. This is like a, just a double initial rivalry. It's interesting. It's the thing I always think about when people sort of heckle comedians. Don't try and front up against P.G. Woodhouse because he's definitely going to chop you down. <laughs> You've given him a lot of material to work with with your uh, you know, kids' books. He's just going to mock you and do a quite a good job of it. It's like you were saying on that episode, was it the Prisons episode, Steve? Was it the guy that went up against Jonathan Swift? Yeah. <laughs> Bad choice, yeah, it? exactly, yeah. Don't, please don't take on humorists. They can only beat you. So um, we picked Smith in the City because of its South London connection. Um, so he moves at one point, Mike moves to Dulwich, to Acacia Road, 
I was I was standing where that passage was earlier today, and I looked, there's a road called Acacia Grove right there. So I don't know if that's off Acacia Road or it's changed its name, or he was making a very specifically not <laughs> not that helpful tweak Almost, to fictionalise yeah. it. You know, oh, he might have just forgotten what the road was. Well, he doesn't called. want a lawsuit from any <laughs> pantomime dame in Acacia Road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, I'm I've read loads of the Jeeves and Worcester stuff. I, it's it's my favourite thing. It's like comfort reading. If you know, if you've got a cold or anything like that, and you're in bed and want cheering up, perfect. You know, um, and this is my first experience with Smith, and I'm definitely going to go on to read the rest of the series because it was, it it is just delightful. That's the only word that I can come up with to sum up how I feel about it. It is constantly full of delight. There's this. Um, profound joie de vivre that undercuts all the narcissism and all that stuff and kind of makes it more palatable. And, you know, to talk about that, the serious stuff again for a second, the, his, Woodhouse's issue was that he was tone deaf to the reality. And if you read his letters, it's very clear that he's tone deaf to public events. He's, he spends all his time working. Like The man's output is insanely prolific. He just writes and writes and writes. And he almost literally hasn't got time to find out what's happening in the war because he's spending all of his time sat behind a typewriter or a pad or whatever it was. And isn't writing from the you know the, the flesh and blood of everyday life. No. These are fantasy stories in a very specific way. It's about an idyllic England that never existed. Uh, it's about these people and places that we have very specific ideas of, but in reality a much more complicated idea. But he simplifies all that. I mean, there's a, a wonderful quote from him where he says... You know, there's two ways to write. You can write what the way that I do, which is basically to do a musical comedy without the music, or you can write as if you just don't give a damn about the world. And that's his his thing. He's like, if I if I'm going to write about everyday life, I'm going to be forced to get involved and feel. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to write about these these situations. I mean, you, you talked about sort of the, the Jeeves and Worcester stuff, and obviously he was incredibly prolific. And the one charge laid against him by literary critics was the fact that the work was very samey. There was a, a great quote again from Woodhouse where he said, uh, a critic said in my last book that it was uh, the, the, the same characters doing the same things just with different names. He said, for the next one I'm going to confound all that and just have the same characters <laughs> do the same things with the same names. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're sort of samey. Someone will get him in the soup. Yes. Uh, someone will get Worcester in the soup. Normally, it will be a dangerous woman, either an aunt, a, a good and deserving aunt, or a, a spiteful and difficult aunt, will require him to do something, or he'll accidentally end up engaged to someone who turns out to be difficult, you know, um, and then Jeeves will have to extricate him from the soup. And that's every, that's every one of them. And yet, the last one feels as fresh and engaging and entertaining as the first one. You know, it's it's an incredible achievement because he really does just write the same thing over and over again. But you're not just like with Chandler. You're not there for the plot. You're not there for the. You're not even there for the characters. You're there for the words. That kind of the way he puts words, one word next to another word, is better than how other people do it. Although we do have to say, as a point of contrast from Chandler, his books are meticulously plotted. They are they are exquisite, and particularly the Jeeves and Worcester ones, which are you know farce is so different. You know the mechanics of it to make sure, and and some of the books are are based around the thing of this. 
wonderful piece of clockwork just clicks into place at the last minute and everything gets this lovely tidy conclusion which you need yeah. and that's what's great about it the fact that he, and it's a similar thing with Smith in the City where Smith descends and brings chaos around but then also sorts everything out for everyone you know it does sort of comes up with a solution for Mike and like you know sort of get, comes out perfectly clean with the situation with the bank so yeah it's um, tremendously Put you made a Seinfeld reference earlier, and that just clicked and made me think. I was it's thinking Seinfeld then when he's yeah, saying that. Yeah. Meticulously plotted, all these moving parts coming together and overlapping for comic effect. But it's the fast model in it. That's the the original. Model but you of can fast. make an argument of Kramer as being a very Smithian character. As yeah, well. yeah. I don't know if uh, Seinfeld or David Redney put you well. Wouldn't be surprised at all. I would be surprised. Would you? Yeah, I would. I don't know why. Culturally. Seems like a mismatch. Let's ask them. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of Woodhouse's relationship with Dulwich, um, as you said earlier, he absolutely loved it. There's a, again a quote from him where he talks about the problem for potential biographers. He said, um, you know, biographers need me to hate my parents, had a terrible childhood and despised school. But he said... Uh, my parents were lovely. That's not true. We didn't really know him. We spent six months with him. First, she's like, yeah. My parents were lovely. My childhood was wonderful. And the six years I spent in Dulwich was the most blissful of my life. He was the editor of the school magazine, The Elanian. He was, uh, performed in musical and theatrical productions. Was in the classic sixth form group, which was for the highest, uh, the most academically able uh, students. He also represented the school in cricket, rugby, and boxing. He's a huge boxing fan. His first trip to America is to see a boxing match. Right. Yeah. You could being there earlier today. You could see why that can be an idyllic experience. You could definitely also see how it could be a complete oppressive nightmare if you weren't wired right for it. But if you were, if you could play that system in the kind of way that Smith does, almost, then you you can see how it could be idyllic because it's ridiculous. It's not the real world. Yeah. It, it looks, you said it's Hogwarts-like. And it it's like, it's not so much that it's Hogwarts-like as Hogwarts is Dulwich College-like. You know, it's <laughs> like, they're, that's the model for those places because yeah. they are, they do feel separate from reality. They're from a, another time and another place. Even then they were from another time because Dulwich College have been there since 1619. You know, that's... Yeah, I mean, Dulwich is, um, I was saying to Paul earlier, even now, in 2014, Dulwich Village is still in its own bubble, which is extraordinary, considering, you know, if you take the whole of South London, there's very, very, you know, there are some affluent parts, but there are, it's very difficult to find an affluent part that isn't right next to a non-affluent part, <laughs> but Dulwich Village, like, you know, the village, the college, um, you know, there's free private schools in that tiny space. And it is like, you know, uh, there's someone I work with who refers to, when I, whenever we talk about things in Dulwich, you'll say the college, the hamlet, meaning the school, the juniors, the infants, um, and other places. And just just with the, I think we talked about this with Richie on that episode as well. And it is just like, people are in, they're in Dulwich village, it kind of almost is still a village. You, and when you go through on the bus... You, you just you feel like I like I can't almost like I definitely wouldn't get off. I'm not getting off between Forest Hill and Loughborough Junction. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's not for me. <laughs> it, it is, it's, we've got estate agents trying to make 
a lot of South London into villages by using that. But you're right, it does. It feels like a language that has been just sort of like plopped down. It hasn't. It's been, as you say, there for for years. But it does have a very different feel to anything around it. Yeah, like kids, like posh kids walking around in, you know, they've got like fifty different school ties. It's just so <laughs> different. I mean. Steve and I went to probably fairly similar schools, I suppose. Yeah. You know, kind of semi-independent yeah. state schools, essentially. What kind of secondary school did you go to, Paul? So, um, my first secondary school was in Zimbabwe, and it was a state secondary school, but the, it was called Churchill School. So it was after the revolution, but it was called Churchill School still. I think it might have had a name change since. Um, and it the model of the state school system in Zimbabwe was based on the English public school system because all those schools had been taken over from being whites-only schools and stuff. But the at that time, in the first ten years of Zimbabwe's independence, they spent more of their per capita expenditure was spent on education than any country in the world except Sweden. So it's like a massive priority. So it was kind of like going to an English public school in that, I mean, like, apart from everyone there, was from Zimbabwe. But, you know, we because of the weather and stuff, so you'd break up at one o'clock in the afternoon and then go play sports. And being at Dulwich really reminded me of that because it is this, it's nowhere near as grand architecturally, but it's a school in the middle of these, these massive playing fields. And, and that there's something about the, the physical aspect of that which shows how important sport is in those schools because just look at how much of the space is used for which activity of course sport needs a lot of space by its necessity but that it is provided that shows you that that part of it is this like rich and important tapestry of life and like it was compulsory to go and watch the first team rugby team where I went to school you everyone in the school had to be in the stands to watch the and I had like no interest whatsoever in rugby so I used to like find ways to sneak Could out you sit there and reading the Jews and what's and cricket I suppose was there a lot of cricket in Zimbabwe yeah, yeah I, cricket, I, yeah. Oh, it's a very sore spot for me because I played in the cricket team at my primary school in Zimbabwe and had a terrible cricketing injury so I was not then allowed to play cricket anymore which was a real shame but yeah there was loads of cricket played and, but also basketball and football was massive you know so. but I was I was, uh, I was was younger than all the other kids so I was a year or two younger than everyone else in the senior school so like I was also <laughs> tiny looking up at these kids I was expected to compete with at sport it was difficult <laughs> Um, so you played basketball instead. I did. I did. That's what got me into it. What house were you in? Um, I think I was in Winston House. In Churchill School. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, but that's the only one I can remember the name of. But there was, I think, Spencer. Spencer, because that maybe was his mum's maiden yeah, name or something. Was, was, oh, wow. Right, there you go. So that was, yeah, but I think I was in Winston House, which feels like that's got to be the best one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Churchill School. Unless it was a Churchill House. <laughs> Which you imagine you probably run out of names. What house were you in, Steve? Oh, uh, we didn't have houses. I went there, but there were like boards on the wall that indicated the time when there were houses. I don't remember any of the names. I think they were all. Uh, I think they were saints' names. It was a uh, Catholic brothers who ran the school. I was. I was in Second Starboard. 
Right. I was in one one six, if that helps. That was my form group. <laughs> but that way, it just got mathematical. They took all the, the poetry and lyricism out. Of it. <laughs> yeah, the same. My, I was in two YS. There you go. That's, no fun, is no, it? Not good at all. Get me back to Winston House. <laughs> I should say that, like, it kind of paints this picture that it was somehow like an English public school, but we were studying agriculture and you know, really, wow. yeah, it wasn't like classics and stuff. It was just agriculture and English and maths and science. So it wasn't. It wasn't actually fancy. I like the way you led with, led with ag- agriculture to indicate how normal your school was. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, was, the actual content of those lessons were... There was this thing called work gang, which was a punishment, where you would have to take a... Because uh, no, there weren't lawnmowers around, so you'd have to take a, a slasher, which is like a piece of metal, looks like a golf club with no end on it, and it's slightly sharpened at the bottom, and slash the grass, and that was a punishment for work gang. But also, first year agriculture class, <laughs> was like, I'm like, I'm not, I'm definitely not learning anything, that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is a long way from Woodhouse, but he, he found his school experience to be idyllic. Dulwich, not the only reference to South London and Smith in the city. They have a scrap at Clapham Common. They do, and it's kind of interesting because that's where... I've spoken up a lot for Woodhouse's character, but there is a bit of the... the, the this has something which the Worcester books never have, which is something slightly unpleasant about the upper classes. There's a slightly sneering quality to that scene and then the subsequent scene at the dinner party. A lot of people were given dialogue with letters missing, aren't they? You know, people were kind of... To the extreme as well. Yeah, it's not yeah. just like er, erd rather yeah. than heard. It's just like what's he saying? <laughs> You've got working class toughs looking for a fight, essentially. Yeah, but uh, it's the toughs that start the fight. <laughs> 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 so so often the way um, you were saying earlier about the kind of real world uh, with Woodhouse, and it's funny we talk about Clapham Common. He says. Uh, the first, well, Smith says, the first thing to do is to ascertain that such a place as Capham Common really exists. <laughs> One has heard of it, of course. Has its existence ever been proved? <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible piece of writing, that, though. It's so... Because if you sort of take a sort of charitable view of that bit of writing... It's saying that this, per- it's setting this person up as a, a truly ridiculous character. You know, how, you know, to question the existence of Clapham Common, how out of touch are you with reality that you think that? And I kind of feel it's a bit sort of self depreciating. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I think it's also like Smith parodying himself almost. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. so, yeah. But it's also, I think, worth saying in, when talking about that context that this is an early book mm. this is like in his early career as a as a novelist isn't it that yeah it's much earlier than the woodhouse novel they yeah i mean this novels. is 1908 and 09 is serialized and comes out in 1910 yeah so when you're talking about the second world war exactly. I mean, it's quite a long yeah. no, yeah. space of time yeah. isn't it yeah no, it's I mean, and the fact that i mean this is um so this is 30 years before the big sleep yeah, and but they overlapped by a term Absolutely. at Dulwich College, yeah. which yeah. Uh, yeah, I was not expecting. Yeah, because Chandler goes off and has a. I'm ta- that's a, I just said that in South London hardcore tense, which is present continuous tense. That's like the official tense of <laughs> South London hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he goes off and has a career and is quite a senior oil executive before leaving to become a writer. Whereas Woodhouse uses writing to escape from. Working in the bank. Yeah. And so, he started at college, didn't he? He started, he had stories published in the... Yeah, he's editing the magazine, so I'm pretty sure he's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a fair bit of the, uh, 
Did my stuff make it? Uh, Pelham. It didn't, I'm afraid. <laughs> four of mine in there. They're really good. <laughs> and they were. One of the concluding parts of the story that ties things up is the revelation of the minutes of the Tulse Hill Parliament, another hmm. South London mention. And I think there's another one, but he sort of disguises it. Kenningford. Yeah, that's not a real place, is it? No. I mean, why did he not just say Kennington? I'm assuming it's something Or because something it's to, fictional, maybe. I'm, I'm assuming it's something to do with not... Uh, I imagine the publishers have stepped in and gone, we don't want anything that could allude to a parliamentary candidate at any point in Kennington. Right. And he does also... He kind of is quite uh, mean about the people of Kenningford. Yes, he? yeah. Um, yeah, that was a bit odd, wasn't it? Because you go from Dulwich and it, uh, and then to Kenningford. I'm like, okay, so it's just Dulwich. This real, you know, this place, yeah. Kenningford, does it even exist? And then, <laughs> <laughs> but and then you say we go from, to Clapham and Tulsa. But I, I'm, and he, he makes a point of saying at one point Kenningford, SE. So it's definitely oh, right, a place in yeah, South yeah. London, mm-hmm. and there isn't a place called Kenningford. No. I mean, you know, we'd have found it by now, wouldn't we? <laughs> Episode one hundred and uh, <laughs> the search for Kenningford. <laughs> yeah. Jack, is this your first Woodhouse? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Wodehouse. <laughs> Roadhouse. <laughs> no, uh, but Steve uh, listens to some audio books. Will you get into this, Steve? And an American one, and they refer to him as Wodehouse. With the first chapter, the first three chapters, you know, by a woman. Hell, ham, world house. And the woman goes, and they, you know, to set it up, they they make it clear it's it's a free audiobook, and you're like, good, because you just called him PJ Wood, PJ Wodehouse. <laughs> <laughs> he died before this technology was invented. <laughs> <laughs> but then, having said that, uh, and then of course you've got the problem: it's American readers, and there's she doesn't try to do any of the English voices. But then the next reader does, and there that's a bit of a mess. But then you know. The, the flip side of that is I read it wasn't an audiobook of the big sleep it was um, some guy doing like a parody thing for a newspaper that's just weak really, you've read really the book though Steve as well yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um, I, was, I was just curious as to see I've read parodies <laughs> but in that he does try and do the voices and it's just sort of like mm, this is but, yeah, this is the trouble of audiobooks isn't it this is the I, I mean, fiction anyway fiction I I've never enjoyed an audiobook. Non-fiction audiobooks can be great. Like yes. Chuck Closterman reading yeah. Sex, Drugs and Cocoa Puffs well, is tremendous. Also, the author um, reading the book is a very different beast. Yeah. And also, too. just to quickly jump in, the Alan Partridge, I Partridge, is so good in yeah, audiobook. It's, it's tremendous. But I yeah, from Amazon probably used the South London Hell calling. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We should I, get in bed with Audible as well because <laughs> it's on my Facebook every day. Yeah, but. I read the, or tried to listen to the Game of Thrones audiobook. Award-winning. Or record-setting, I should say. The man who does the Game of Thrones audiobook does like 144 voices, which is some sort of record. But what you realise is he does a lot of those really bad things. <laughs> like, you've got... There's a lot of female characters in the book, isn't there? Yeah. And uh, Does he do Tywin? <laughs> Bring me prostitutes now. <laughs> Dreadful. Yeah, he, do, he just does... It, and it's the same with any sort of Tyrion. audiobook. Tyrion. You Sorry. <laughs> carry on, Steve. You know, any time you have... A man trying to do female work. I don't care how good these people think they are in terms of uh, readers. It's just a mess, isn't it? I feel like Woodhouse might be a bit of an exception to that. Because, especially early Woodhouse, because the female characters, there's no substance anyway. So you might as well be doing a man reading a woman's voice. Because essentially it's a man writing a woman's voice. And also with, you know, the character in Smith and the City is is described as a pan's one day and if you look at a lot of the aunts in the books, Aunt Dahlia and Aunt Agatha being prime examples, they're ripe for performances as pantomime dates. Yeah. If you were doing a stage adaptation 
and it turned out that it was a fellow in drag doing it, you'd have no problem at all with that because yeah. they are such overblown characters. Yeah, Stephen Fry in a dress. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, carry on. <laughs> so, yeah, talking of Stephen Fry, um, lots of people know Woodhouse from the, the TV adaptation and um, we were just having a little chat about it and... and I can't remember if I saw the TV programme before I started reading the books, but it was definitely at the same time as they were first on television that I started reading the books, so I can only assume that was uh, that was the case, and so I quite liked Fry and Laurie. Watching them back, having read a lot of the books, they're okay, they're fine, they're good, they're funny in places, they're a, they're a good start, but they're not a patch on the books. No, no. I mean, I think they're tremendous adaptations. You're not going to do better adaptations than those. The right. production design on it, the yep. casting. I mean, the casting of Stephen Fryer and Hugh Laurie as Jeeves and Worcester. Who the fact plays that who? Stephen Fryer plays Jeeves um, and So Hugh that's Laurie's. a really interesting question to me. Yes. Because... Well, bear in mind that all I know is that one's a butler and one isn't. <laughs> but, oh, yes, yeah. your first one yeah, so Oh, okay, right, never mind, never mind. That's, that makes it a much less But go down that road anyway, Paul. Well, no, because my, my dad always used to say they should flip the casting. Um, because actually, Fry's Jeeves uh, is not great. Uh, it might be controversial, but there's a sort of smarmy quality to Fry's Jeeves. But Jeeves is not smarmy at all. Jeeves is like solid as a rock, you know. Um, and I think Worcester's perfect. I think I, I don't think you could improve on Hugh Laurie's performance as Worcester. But I'm so not... basically, recast Fry. Don't flip. Yeah, it. That's, yeah. <laughs> I, I I agree with what you're saying. He's not the Jeeves from the books, but and I think on that basis. But I think as a performance, I like it. I know what you mean, but I don't I don't know if it would work as well because. You're losing a lot of the prose and a lot of a lot of what comes across of what a lot of what we love of Jeeves in the book is Bertie talking about Jeeves. Jeeves it, shimmered into the room. Absolutely, and it, and it is it's you know one one of my favourite parts of any Jeeves and Worcester book is when Bertie because it's it's Bertie who's the narrator in the book and he will as you say describe Jeeves entering a room or or just do these wonderful sort of flights of fancy about and he's always uh, oh, the qualities of the man. And he talks about um, uh, how he's going to need, uh, you know, he's surprised he can find a, a hat that can hold a brain so large. And, <laughs> and, and as I say, I, I think it would be hard to have adapted those, you know, unless you're going to prepare to give Hugh Laurie a five minute monologue well, this on is the, the trouble with this, isn't it, it, yeah. It's the price realization. And I, I agree with you that it's not the Jeeves from the book, but I quite enjoy that take on it, right. where it is Jeeves sort of, he, he it sort of retains the almost superhuman nature of him from the books where nothing flaps him. And the, the sort of smarminess is, it, it, I think it's, it's like a stage thing. You need the little movement of the eyebrow that assures the audience that Jeeves has it under control because you haven't got half a page of Bertie sort of going, Jeeves has it under control. <laughs> so, uh, and, and what I love about it is because, and I think the performances are great, but also the fact that you stumbled across these two guys who physically can perform the roles mm-hmm. are very good comedic actors and have an existing relationship for 20 years previously. <laughs> yeah. So you've got this intimacy and trust that is so key to those performances. I think it would have been very tough to... I always say, in terms of casting, that and... Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. Right. <laughs> just in terms of like, yeah, that looks incredible. And then it's a great performance as well. But just to stumble across these people who are perfect for these roles. Yeah, who are also massive fans. Absolutely. Yeah. They're always quoted on. Which way round would you have cast us, Paul? If, if... As Jason Worcester? Yeah, did I get it the right way round? 
I feel like... you don't have a choice. You've got... You're really <laughs> the only actors available. It's a post-apocalypse. It's a three of us are alive. <laughs> I, I, I would say I'm Jeeves just because I think... That's what I said before. You pulled me off on it. No, no, no. no, 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 no. He just wanted to make sure you knew that wasn't an insult. That's the thing. <laughs> but I also think in terms of if you, ha- if you had to... And this is a wonderful moment for any uh, audio production, because I'm going to describe me and Jack physically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you go to southgroundhardcore.com, there's a photograph, and so I think we'll confirm at that. At College. Yes, at Dulles College. At one and also, photo is at Dulles College. But also wearing very formal clothes, which helps in terms of what I'm going to wear. So you have to imagine me in a butler's outfit, which is not dissimilar to what I'm wearing. You'd be dressed more casually, Jack, but still very smartly. And I think you would look a lot better in one of Bertie's casual suits than I would. I think... I look. I, I I think of myself being more like Beach, the butler from Blandings, who's a, a stockier character. I think Jeeves is is gonna is gonna be slimmer than me, not as slim as you. I don't think. I imagine Jeeves being somewhere between the two of us. Jeeves is tall. That's the yes. physically. That's but the thing. I, I think I would uh, look better as a butler than than Jack would. I think. I think Jack look, looks better as a dissolute uh, toff. Can I give the uh, well? I suppose I could do the voice. If, uh, <laughs> absolutely necessary. <laughs> yeah, I've got the part, Paul. I've got the part. <laughs> totally. Sold. So the Christmas show... Stephen has to be a slim on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, our listeners know no better. They don't know what, how much weight I've put on. Also... What I said was slimmer than me. <laughs> 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 you also said slimmer than Jeeves and Worcester. <laughs> there you go. Worcester does eat a lot of dinners. He does, but then he, he's up. I'd say do I, Steve. But, it's just <laughs> but the thing about Bertie is you always get the feeling that uh, he's out till four in the morning drinking nothing but cocktails. So he's not, yeah. you know, he's not really uh, getting any calories apart from the booze there, is he? He sort of burns off a lot of calories from anxiety as well, I think. It's interesting because there's a, there's a heightened quality to the problems. Everything is life and death and desperate. But actually, it really is like... Oh, I say, this this dinner party is going to go terribly wrong unless such and such <laughs> happens. You know, um, so yeah, there's obviously these. It's the Woodhouse stuff is pure escapism, and it's very in its kind of most condensed form. It's like it's it's magical reality. It's not. There's no merit to it beyond it's hilarious and delightful. It, it's not an exploration of anything. It's just fun. And there's a big place for that. But the fact that he does turn it into a high wire act where Bertie has to see a cow creamer so that the aunt can then bribe the uncle into giving her money so she can keep her magazine. (laughs) And you're right, these are all inconsequential (laughs) matters. But you do read it sort of going, I hope this comes off with (laughs) fun. Knowing that it definitely will. So whenever I write something, if I ever go to call it a piece, or I've written a piece on da-da-da... My brain goes, I've written a piece on what the well-dressed man is wearing. Which is <laughs> never what I've actually written, but that's, uh, that's, Bertie says that so often. I once contributed an article, or as we say in the business, a piece. So like, it's made me really self-conscious about the use of that word. Are there any P.G. Woodhouse blue plaques in South London? I don't think so, no. There's a Ram Journal one, isn't there? It's yeah. just happening, is it? Is it's yeah, just up, gone up. Just gone up. On uh, Auckland Road in Upper Norwood. Lived there from 1900 to 1905, which was the longest he lived anywhere in London. Thanks for coming on the show, Paul. Yes, yeah, a real pleasure. I've had a great time. Big yeah, fan yeah. of the show, as you know. Yeah, tell, tell all your friends about it. I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I frequently tell people about it 
using my Twitter account, which you can find. These links, man. At UTD Rankcast, but that's only of interest if you. Oh, no, it's not, man. If you support well, Manchester United. Yeah, I mean, you can follow me at Yids, and I, I don't talk about Tottenham that much anymore. You can get there and talk about many things. Yeah, but if you like, if you really hate watching people talk about football, definitely. Yeah, maybe give it a swirl. <laughs> Although, think... it's quite nice that in Smith in the City, um, he has to become an expert on Manchester United. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. That's because in order to get in with Rossiter as immediate boss, he has to learn all about Rossiter's passion, which is Manchester United. And there's references to the Turnbull brothers and, and Billy Meredith, who is like... an. It's an absolute bona fide Manchester United legend, so it was nice to see that. It's decent of you as well, not to mention it until an hour and a half in. <laughs> We've not gone straight to like, let's talk about the Man United business, but. We did, we did just pick the perfect book, didn't we? It's got Southampton, the Man United. We picked a better book to get And we should say that Paul did pick it, so thanks, Paul. I didn't know about the Manchester United bit. I just was happened to be reading it, and the bloke moved into Dulwich, and I thought, well, we should do that one then. So we? you say, Paul. So. <laughs> The Holdfast Network is home to South London Hardcore, Process, The Leftfield Shout and Forward the Hamlet. Visit holdfastnetwork.com or search for Holdfast Network in iTunes. I mean, I read, don't put this in, but I read uh, Big Sleep on uh, Project Gutenberg Canada. So uh, <laughs> I've, got it out, I've got it out of the minute library. Yeah, so, so you know, we're not buying books. I bought it off Amazon, but I didn't use the South London. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, well done, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing it right. <laughs> uh,